The following audio presentation is from Parkwood Baptist Church. The purpose of Parkwood Baptist Church is to glorify God by laboring together for the growth of all believers while going with the gospel to all peoples. More information about Parkwood Baptist Church is available at parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org. In the winter of 1998, 20 years ago, I went to a pastor's conference in Minneapolis, Minnesota. It's not cold here, okay? (laughs) It never got above two degrees the entire time I was there. The first night before the conference began, I met in the hotel a Presbyterian pastor from Princeton, New Jersey. The next morning, we went together to the conference And during the opening session, they sang the original hymn version of the deep, deep love of Jesus. And for those of you who grew up uh, possibly in a Presbyterian background or a more high church background, the original hymn is in a minor key. It's a little bit difficult to sing. But I was in a room full of 600 pastors who were singing this song with all that they had. And my Presbyterian brother, he was giving it all he had singing this song. And the first stanza, oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unbounded, measureless, free, sweeping as a mighty ocean. And a tsunami hit me. And I began to weep. (laughs) My new friend looked at me and out loud says, What's wrong with you? And I collected myself and I said, I've never heard this song. He said, you're kidding me. I said, no, sir. I never could pull it together. Every line of the song was just deeper and deeper, sweeping the steadfast love of God, the deep, deep love of Jesus over my heart. The title of this message is Sing a New Song. And what I want you to see today from Psalm 33 is that the steadfast love of the Lord, the deep, deep love of Jesus, births a new song in the hearts of his people. This psalm is a hymn of praise to the Lord. It's a hymn of praise for who he is and for what he does. He is creator, he is sovereign, he is judge, he is savior. Every line of this hymn, this psalm is dedicated to him. It connects to Psalm 32, watch. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, this is verse 11, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart, verse one, chapter 33. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Due to its length, I'm not gonna read it in its entirety. Let me pray for us and we will launch into seeking to understand this psalm. Let's pray. Father, we pray now that as we open your word that you would give through the power of the Spirit insight and clarity as to what you are saying. And Lord, we understand this is not an educational exercise only. We're not just to learn. It is to be applied. And it is to be applied in that we praise you, that we sing the new song. So I pray for the person in this room who does not yet know you. I pray today you would open their eyes to the joy of salvation, that you would transform their heart and life and birth in them the new song. And for those who are your people, oh God, I pray that anew, afresh, they would see 
the mercy of God, the grace of God, and that they will join again in the chorus of the song. Lead us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's consider this quote before we proceed. Only God's people recognize that their blessings come from the Lord and not from themselves. Here's what sets God's people apart from the rest of the world and from other religions. Is that we recognize that the blessings that we enjoy are not from ourselves. They are from the Lord. And that's what we see in this psalm as it explains to us who God is and what he does. Now, there are two calls or two sections to this psalm. The first is this. The steadfast love of the Lord calls for a new song from his people. So there's a call to worship in verses 1 through 3, and it is specifically directed to the people of God. It says, Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. Now this gets up and rambles around in our Baptist world right off the bat. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Explanation point. Praise befits the upright. So this form of praise Shout for joy in the Lord is fitting, this is right, it is appropriate for God's people. Now, I don't care who you are, I don't care how subdued you are, I don't care how reserved you are, at some point in your life, you have verbally expressed with excitement joy. I don't know what caused it, but something, something caused it to come out of you. Here's what the Bible's saying, that those who've been made righteous through Christ, those who have been made right with the Lord through his grace, what that births in us is a shout of joy. Now, it's not like, it's not like, uh, I've had people say this, well, you think God can't hear you? Come on. Of course he can hear you. You don't even have to say it out loud. But here's what the Bible's saying right here. It's appropriate, it's right for his people to shout for joy. That's something that, that happens with God's people because God is God. Because of who he is and because by his grace he is ours forever and ever, it wakes within us an unceasing, overflowing joy that breaks forth through our lips. That continues, verses two and three. Give thanks to the Lord with a lyre. Make melody to him with a harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. Now, here's what you're going to see. Praise is done with your voice and with instruments. It presses then into the means, the means being your voice or the instrument, and gets to the heart and the mind. That praise should be from our hearts with joyful affection and from our mind with get great skill. Give thanks, that's from your heart. Give thanks to the Lord with, so here's, a, here's an appropriate 
fitting way for the giving of thanks with the lyre making melody to him with the harp of 10 strings. Now these are instruments that have been used at this point in time among the people of Israel, stringed instruments. Now we would use guitars. By the way, that's a stringed instrument, a piano. And we would use these things in order to, to communicate our thanks to the Lord. Now, this is kind of free, a little sidebar for a second. So I'm reading a, a commentary, which is actually very good, uh, but it was from the Victorian period, and it was a period in time where everything was done right and proper. And it was arguing against using stringed instruments in worship, and this was the argument. Well, that was for Israel. There's absolutely no evidence whatsoever in the Bible that we're to stop using stringed instruments. Don't make that argument. Don't use the Bible to say what you want it to say. We are all in danger of that. The Bible says here, it is right to make melody to him with the heart of 10 strings. Actually, it's emphatic. There's an explanation point in the English. Sing, that is, use your voice, sing to him a new song. And then, those of you with instruments, it says, play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. Now, I'm grateful it doesn't say sing skillfully. Now, those of you who can't carry a tune in the bucket, I encourage you to sing, make a joyful noise, the Bible says, to the Lord, but don't do it in such a way you distract. In other words, don't do it real loud with people around you who can't focus. So I don't just sit over there in that seat so I can get up here. I sit over there because you notice, look out around. As my voice emanates, nobody can hear it. So I don't get right up in the middle of you folks. But it does say this. Those of you who take up an instrument, you better be able to play it. Because if you can't play it skillfully, you're going to detract. You're going to detract the melody that we all need to get together to be able to sing, that we can make melody to him. Now, what is it we're all trying to accomplish? We're singing and playing the new song. So what is a new song? It is a song directed to the Lord God. It is, it is opposed to the old song or the song we sang before salvation. That song either ignored God altogether or it misrepresented God. The old song of our hearts was worldly, meaningless, earthly. It was man-centered. The new song is directed toward the eternal God. It is God-centered in how it is to be sung. <laughs> it's always amazed me over the years. You know, people take some secular song and say, well, it mentions God right here. Listen. It may not be the same God you're thinking about. In fact, quite often, it's not referring to the God that you're talking about. We're talking about the God of the Bible. And what we sing to him is the song of salvation, the song of the redeemed. The new song is new in the sense that it continues to celebrate what is always new, the act of God's redemption that never grows old to God's people. And that's not just now. It will never grow old for all of eternity. Now, what, what comes from here in verses 4 through 7 are reasons to sing this new song. So praise has reason behind it. And the reason is found in God himself and who he is and what he has done. 
So I'm going to use a couple big words for a second. Worship we could refer to as doxology, our worship of God. What we believe about God we would call theology. Listen to me. This is true of every one of you in this room, whether you know how to use those big words or not. Your theology, what you believe about God, drives your doxology. What you believe about God drives whether or not you praise him and how that you praise him. Now, here are the reasons this particular psalm. Now, there's multiple reasons in the Bible. Here's the reasons. For the word of the Lord is upright and all his work is done in faithfulness. That means what God has said and what God has done cannot be separated. The Bible teaches elsewhere, very similarly, his word will not return what? Void. It's going to accomplish what he sent it forth for. The word of the Lord is right. It's upright. And his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. That's because he is righteous and he is the just judge. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord, the covenant-keeping love, the grace of God. Now, here's what happens when you get saved. When you come to know Christ, when you experience the steadfast love of God in your life, you start seeing it everywhere. You start noticing the steadfast love of God all around you. It's not just something you see at church or when you open your Bible. You certainly see it there in emphatic ways, but you begin to see that the earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. Verse six, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. God said, let there be light, and there was light. Genesis one. By the breath, I love this Hebrew word, ooh By the breath of his mouth, that's in one word, ooh all their host. That means that God spoke and breathed and the heavens and the heavenly beings came to be. He gathers the waters as the sea, as a, of the sea as a heap. Now, a particular image ought to come into your mind. Now, whether you really know the Bible or not, just think about the movie about Moses. Heap, what comes in your mind? The parting of the what? The Red Sea. He gathers the waters as he holds the waters back in a heap. And then it says, he puts the deeps, this is the deeps of the sea, in, and notice this, plural, in storehouses. Now this is one of those moments when the Bible makes you feel this big. So God takes the deeps and he's got storehouses where he stores the deeps. By the way, Genesis 6 through 9 when he released this water from the deeps is when he flooded the earth. So this water he's got in the deeps, I, I, I just, I got interested. I thought, I'm going to find out what is the deepest place in the ocean. Now, some of you that are way bigger nerds than me, and I confess I'm a nerd, may already know that. 36,000 feet deep. That means the deepest place in the ocean is one mile deeper than the height of Mount Everest. Now here's the humility. God's got that stored up in a storehouse and he's got more. That means he is the sovereign creator of the universe and his people see it. 
Now, we as his people have every reason to sing the new song because we are recipients of his steadfast love and we have come to know and are coming to know him, the one true God, who he is and how he acts. But this new song that we sing is not just for us. It's a missionary song. We call others to sing it. So we see a transition in verse eight and we see that the steadfast love of the Lord calls for a new song from the peoples. It says, let all the earth, not just the upright, not just the righteous, this call goes out to everyone. Let all the earth fear or be in awe of the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Now hold your place there and turn to Psalm 96. Psalm 96. There's a lot of similarity between Psalm 33 and Psalm 96. Psalm 96, verse 1. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Not just on Sunday. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations. It's not just something we do with each other. We make this known among the peoples of the world. How marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all of the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering. Come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Now, I've been invited over the years to offer a prayer at a, at a service with multiple religions represented, and I've been told how I could do it, and I refuse. In fact, I won't do a prayer at a service with multiple religions represented. Here's why I won't do it. Because it is communicating to the audience that I think that Christianity is equal with these others. We sing a very specific song. We ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. We're not worshiping a generic God. We're not joining the song of the world to this generic God. The fact, Psalm 96 says, all the gods are idols. They're false gods. We are declaring who the one true God is. So back to Psalm 33, and let's look at the reasons it gives to sing this new song. For he spoke and it came to be. He's going back to what he's already presented. God spoke the world into creation. He commanded it stood firm. Not only is he speaking into creation, he keeps it. So this sovereign God who creates and keeps should bring all to us, but it's also a comfort to us. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. You study history, you find out over and over again, these nations who rise up, who try to take over the world, their plans are frustrated and they're defeated over and over again. Right now, there's a lot of threat going on in the world, a lot of posturing happening in the world. You could, you could get freaked out about it, but here's what's true. God's gonna frustrate the plans of people's. But here's what's going to last forever, the counsel of the Lord. The plan of his heart to all generations. Here's what has continued 
through all of this rising up and falling of nations is God's covenant people. Israel and then through Christ Jesus, the Lord, his church. And God will keep his people. We are a, a point of reference to the steadfast love of God. Verse 12, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. What, what punctuations after God is the Lord? It's a what? It's a comma, not a period. I've seen this verse misused and taken out of context way too much. You can't take this verse and assign it to the United States of America. It was never intended to do that. That is not what this means. Blessed is the nation whose God is the, work, the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. Now, God's speaking about a very specific group of people. In this context, at this moment, at the writing of this psalm, he's speaking of Israel. They are the blessed people, the, God, the people whom God has chosen. Now, when you place this verse in the context of the entire Bible and the understanding of the New Testament, we understand that it is his redeemed people. So turn over to 1 Peter chapter 2, and you're going to see the similarity of language in 1 Peter 2, verses 9 through 10. <clears throat> but you, what precedes this in 1 Peter is, how we've been redeemed through the work of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Speaking of the church, his people. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy what? So we're not a people with a, with a political boundary around us. We, God's people, over time and across oceans, we are a holy nation. We are a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The redeemed, those who have received the grace and mercy of God, we sing a new song. We sing a new song because we are his people. We are the people on whom he has had mercy. We are a distinct people of God, and we are a blessed people. Now, this does not mean that God is ignoring the rest of humanity. He knows all about people. Verses 13 through 15, I want you to notice the repetition of the word all. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. <laughs> so here's what you need to understand today. God knows everything about you. Everything. There's no person out of his view. And when we study this and understand the doctrine of man, the truth about man from the scripture, when we widen the lens out to the rest of scripture, here's what we find about the children of humanity, that all are sinful. And the Lord knows all of it. In fact, he says, all have sinned and what? Come short of the glory of God. Now, here's what I noticed. It happened last service too. A lot of you stopped it short. For all have sinned and come short. All right, that's a very American doctrine. I hadn't quite measured up yet, so I need to measure up. No, here's what you've come short of, the glory of God. That means apart from Christ, you can't glorify God. You can't. 
apart from the work of redemption. This is what God knows about you. And he presses it further. Note the repetition of great here. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation and by its great might, it cannot rescue. Now listen, I'm not being political here. Don't write me letters. Do not write me letters. I am not trying to be political. But, but I, I, it, it makes me wince when every, any politician makes words like our president does and he's gonna make us great again. As if they're using, and he's not the only president to do this, Many of them in the 20th century have used salvific language. In other words, as if they are the savior of America. No human being, no man, no king will ever save us, ever. We don't place our hope in a person. We don't place our hope in an army. We don't place our hope in our strength. We don't place our hope in our technology. The war horse was the greatest form of technology you could have. If you had a group of war horses, you dominated at this point in time. They are not the hope of salvation. In fact, they are a false hope. It cannot rescue. Now, what's this saying? This is crucial. No man can save us and we cannot save ourselves. The children of man cannot save himself. So what do we do? It is the Lord God, the God of the Bible, the one who extends his steadfast love is the one who saves. Now I just want to interject this right here because of what some of you hear when I use the word sovereign and I've used it many times in this sermon. When I speak of the sovereignty of God, I am not talking about fate or determinism. The God of the Bible is not an impersonal fate. He is not an impersonal determinant. He is a personal God who sees, who delivers, who supplies, and who extends his steadfast love. Look at verse 18. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul. You see that? Their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. This personal God who, who sees, who, who extends his steadfast love, gives salvation. This, this brings my mind. He delivers their soul to Romans 7. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. It is Christ alone who can deliver our souls from death. And the reason he can deliver our souls from death is that he has experienced death on our behalf by taking our sin and he has broken the back of death through the power of the resurrection. Because he has been delivered from the grave, he can deliver our hearts and our souls from death. And then it says he keeps them alive in famine. That is, he provides for his people. He provides our each and every day need. He gives us our daily bread. That is his promise to his people. But let's extend this spiritually. Brothers and sisters, let's, let's, let's just be honest as where we are right now. We are in a spiritual famine. We're in a period in our culture, in history, right now, to where there's a spiritual 
famine happening. Happened to me after the last service. Somebody come up to me. I, I, don't, I don't think anything I, I do on Sundays, it just blows my mind when people say this. Wow, I understood what the Bible meant today. That was clear. Why are we not always clear? God was clear. Why are we muddying things? Here's why. Here's why. Preachers are no longer convinced that the God's word is sufficient enough to feed God's people. It's enough. And God's word is sufficient to open the eyes of the blind. So we proclaim who he is. You know, in the midst of famine, we look to God. And he supplies for us his people. So let's, let's move to a point of application here. As, as, we, as we think about where we're at and we think about turning into a new year and causes us to think forward into the future. Here's my question. Is the steadfast love of the Lord birthing a new song in our hearts? Now I want you to notice the plural nature here. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Now I want to push back and push back hard to an idea that has become a solidified truth that is a partial truth. It goes like this. I can praise God wherever I am. I don't totally disagree with that unless you mean I don't need other people to praise God. Then you're wrong. Because the Bible clearly teaches that the praise of God is a collective experience and expression of God's people together and it will be for eternity. For so those of you who think you're going to walk on the beach and look at sunsets and praise God by yourself for eternity, you're missing it. Heaven will be a collective experience of God's redeemed people who worship at the throne of God. Now, if you think that sounds boring, just reflect on the fact you're going to be in the presence of God Almighty. You're no longer going to be burdened down by who you are. So brothers and sisters, Here's what we say now together. Our soul waits for the Lord. So I didn't, maybe you did this today. and just warn you, you don't come to church so you can get God to give you something. We're not looking for the gift. We come together to look to the giver. Our soul waits for the Lord. We're looking to the Lord. Why? He is our help and our shield. This the sovereign God, the one of absolute power. He is our helper and he is our protector. He's our shield. And, and as he is our helper and our protector, he is extending to us unconditional love. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name that is his reputation. Let your steadfast love be upon us even as we hope in you. 
That's not as if God's going to withhold his steadfast love. He's promised it. It's his covenant with us. He has bound himself to extend his steadfast love to his people. What we're saying is, Lord, make me conscious of this. Make me conscious of your steadfast love as, as I'm hoping and trusting in you. Psalm 79, 13. But we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever from generation to generation. We will recount your praise. Brothers and sisters, every time God's people meet together to praise the Lord, we bring new reasons to sing to him. Not that we've discovered something new about him. We know what we need to know about him from the Bible. It's because throughout the past week, we have experienced God's steadfast love toward us. His, His grace toward us. Even if things have been difficult, because regardless of our circumstances, regardless of what's happening to us, we experience in our lives, and this is true of every generation, we experience the steadfast love of God toward us. So I just want you to pause for a moment, and I want you to think back with me in 2018. And I want you to think of specific Moments, clearly you saw the steadfast love of God in your life. Some of them were simple and quiet. Some were profound and large and big. But but as we do that together, as we reflect Hundreds of praises to God are going up to him as we thank him for past grace. See, it was all grace. Now I want you to think about 2019 and beyond. And I want you to thank him with me right now for future grace. You see, this is a prayer for future grace. Our soul waits for the Lord. Lord, We're looking forward to what you're going to do. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name going forward. Lord, let your steadfast love be upon us. Make us aware of it as we hope in you for the future. John Piper wrote a book, Future Grace. It was one of those profound books in my life, and it was really the first chapter. Piper grew up in Greenville, South Carolina. His daddy is a, was a Baptist evangelist. He's a, Piper is retired now. He was a Baptist pastor up north. And here's what he said has been his experience over the years of ministry is that many, if not most people, most Christians, live what Piper calls a debtor's ethic. So in other words, here's here's what he means. That the reason you live for the Lord is because you owe him. It goes something like this. Well, he's been good to me. I better live for him. 
So what that results in is two kinds of people show up in church on Sunday if you're living the debtor's ethic. The first group shows up like this. <laughs> Nailed it this week. See, the only reason you come to church is for God's high five. Good job. You look around at the rest of us and go, losers. The rest of y'all could just be like me. The world would be a better place. You hardly praise God. Now, you may be able to sing beautifully and bless the rest of us with your vocal cords, but it's going nowhere but to us. Then there's a second group. When you wake up on Sundays, you have a hard time deciding whether you're even going to come. When you get here, you drag yourself in, you won't look up, and here's the thoughts you're thinking. I'm a horrible person. God could never love me. I've counseled with you many times and you say things like this to me. You have no idea what I've done. And here's your Baptist prayer. I need to do better. What does that mean exactly? Let me help you. Here's what you mean. If I'll do better, God will like me. Listen to me. Your only hope now and into the future is God's grace. If you don't get anything else from the Psalms, his steadfast love endures forever. means God's not going, hey, come on, come on, pull it together and I'll help you. Here's what God desires for you. Lord, let your steadfast love be upon us as we hope in you. The only hope I've got in the 2019, the only hope I've got in the future, the only hope I have for eternity, and the only hope you have is the grace of God. Amen. So we don't serve God and we don't praise God because we owe him something. We could never repay him. We praise God and we serve him and we hope in him because his love never fails. It continues forever and forever. Will you bow with me as we pray? Lord, I confess that when we preach on the grace of God, when we think on the grace of God, we have all these crazy thoughts in our minds of how dangerous it is to preach that way. And Lord, I confess there'll be people who abuse your grace. But for those who truly come to understand the grace of God through Christ the Lord, it's transformational forever, ever. It's a tsunami that sweeps over them. When we come to understand the deep love of Christ 
and that deep love, that the well that we draw on for now and for eternity. And Lord, when we understand that in this life that your steadfast love upon, is upon us, that you never leave us nor forsake us. We're never alone. So Lord, I plead for the person here who has sought to save themselves and take care of it on their own. May they repent of that sin, the sin of pride and self-effort and look to Christ and believe in his grace today. And Lord, for those who have trusted in your grace, have wandered back into a debtor's ethic, I pray that they would repent and trust you and look to you for your promise of future grace. Bless us now as we sing in Christ's name. Thanks for listening to this audio presentation from Parkwood Baptist Church, located in Gastonia, North Carolina. Please feel free to share this message with others. For more information about Parkwood Baptist Church, visit parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org.